It's hard to believe that our time is coming to an end, and this evening we are going to uh, examine the very last of the five solas, um, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, um, Scripture alone, and God's glory alone, soli deo gloria. Um, I wanted to uh, tell just a quick story on Todd, um, because he, he... I think shared one on me on Sunday or said something. No, no, okay, well then I'm going to be, I'm going to be careful about the stories I share on Todd. Uh, so Todd and I served on staff with Summit Church um, in, in uh, southwest Florida in the Fort Myers area. And uh, Todd had this Jeep. Uh, this isn't a terrible story, but uh, you know, it was, it was a uh, Jeep Wrangler. And most of the time, those things have a top on them, but not Todd's. Uh, I don't know that he knew where the top was. Maybe he bought it without the top. Uh, but I asked Todd to borrow that Jeep. Now, he, he bought the thing in South Carolina, I believe, and had it for several years. It had made the trip from South Carolina to Florida. Uh, but Todd never, and think about this, he never had a top on that Jeep. Summer, spring, winter, and fall. So... One time I asked Todd if I could borrow his Jeep. I can't remember what was going on, but I was driving it around. And I thought, I'm going to take that thing and, and just clean it out for him. I'm going to do a, a good service uh, for my buddy. And, uh, and I was driving the thing around. And, and to clean it out, I actually needed a rake. Um, there, were, there, were, there were so many leaves in the bottom of the floorboards of that thing. I mean, it was like raking leaves. You know, I was going to get like the yard bag and the rake and clean out Todd's Jeep. When that thing finally broke down, it was like a, a tank. And when it finally broke down, he left it in a parking lot. I, it probably is still sitting there, uh, quite honestly. That, that Jeep's probably sitting in that parking lot. Um, tonight, uh, <laughs> absolutely nothing. I just wanted to tell a story on Todd. Uh, am I on? Am I on? Check, check. Okay, excellent. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. To God be the glory. Um, <laughs> uh, it has been a pleasure to be with you all uh, again in the context of these messages uh, if, if I could be of any encouragement to you I pray that God would use the time that we've had in his word in Romans 3 um, to create in us a greater and greater hunger both for him and his word um, these doctrines uh, have been uh, cornerstones foundational doc, uh, doctrines not just for the Reformers. Again, as I've emphasized, the Reformers were seek simply being biblical. They were simply tethered to their, their word. They were um, recovering what was covered over um, by the church in, in their day of these pinnacle, pinnacle doctrines of the church um, from Jesus to the apostles and the early church fathers um, up to the point of the Reformation. And it was not as though God had left himself without a witness. There had been a faithful remnant in church history, even through the dark ages. Um, but the, the brilliance of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus that shone through um, the Reformation uh, was a, a monumental thing. And that we are here today as Protestant evangelical Christians um, uh, because of God's faithfulness to proclaim His Word and to use men like Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, um, Farrell, that uh, these, these men were um, God's gifts to us in the church. I wanted to uh, begin this evening with reading a, a prayer um, out of the Valley of Vision. Now, the Valley of Vision is a Puritan prayer book. It was 
um, compiled uh, by the, the author and editor um, from a, a host of Puritan prayers. And one of the things that was beautiful about the Puritans is they prayed their theology. Uh, right? If you want to hear somebody's theology, listen to their, their prayers. And the Puritans prayed their theology. The title of this, this little prayer book is Valley of Vision. And the very first prayer um, is this. And it, it relates to um, what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, Lord high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the well, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Several years ago, I heard a pastor say that for the Christian, this life on this earth is the closest thing to hell that we will ever experience. And for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, this life is the closest thing to heaven that they will ever experience. It's significant when we consider our lives in light of eternity. In, in light of the glory that awaits us to worship our Father, Son, and Spirit, our Trinitarian God, free of this body of death, as Paul talks about it. Free from sin. That this is the worst that it will ever be for us who know and love Jesus because He knew and loved us. We're talking about the glory of God tonight. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we read this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that we might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, verse 23 of Romans chapter 3 is an often used, often quoted often shared verse. 
um, evangelistic tracts, the Romans road, begin here. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And, and the, the beauty and the truth of Romans 3.23 is that God created us for His glory. Now, the three things that I, I want to talk about tonight is that um, one is um, what is God's glory? The second thing is that we were created for God's glory. And then the third thing tonight is that we glorify God by faith, evidenced in good works. So Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now what are we talking about there? Um, we know explicitly that all of us, this goes back to Sunday morning, um, all of us, emphasis on that word all, have sinned and come up short of God's glory. Um, how would you answer that question? If you were to, to be asked by somebody and said, hey, you were at church on Wednesday night, what, uh, what were they preaching about? What they, were they talking about? And you say, well, gosh, they were, you know, you want to impress your friends, um, throw out the Latin, Soli Deo Gloria. Um, I read a, a book a few years ago called How to Win Every Argument. And uh, it, was, it was about logic. You know, you have logical argumentation, uh, uh, argumentum ad absurdum, an argument to the absurd, uh, you know, ad hominem to the man. Uh, you, and, and basically the guy said, listen, if you're ever bogged down and you're not winning the argument, just start throwing out the Latin. It'll confuse them and you'll start to win the argument. Uh, it was a great little book about argumentation. So you want to impress your friends, uh, you want to tell them about what you were learning at church on, on Wednesday night, throw out the Latin, soli deo gloria. Well, what is that? That means to God be the glory alone. Well, glory, tell me about that. How do you, how do you answer that question? Now, um, there are two words, one Old Testament Hebrew word, one New Testament Greek word, um, that start to get at um, what this means. Now, the Old Testament word is a word um, called kavod. Now, if you'll allow me to be uh, just a little bit crass this evening, uh, I had Hebrew in undergrad and, and in, in seminary, and I used to use mnemonic devices all the time to try to memorize words and grammar. Um, mnemonic devices, you know, you associate things. And so the way that I always remembered the word kavod is because I, I thought, and it means glory. It's the Old Testament Hebrew word for glory, is I thought, well, gosh, kavod, what does that sound like? It sounds like commode, and, and a commode is like a porcelain throne. You know, you're seated upon the throne. I, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, but you, the crazy thing is this may be the only thing you remember from this sermon tonight. Um, kavod, it means glory. That's the Old Testament Hebrew word. You're going to remember it. Trust me, that's the mnemonic device. You're going to remember it. Now, the New Testament word, the equivalent in the New Testament, is where we get our doxology, right? Um, we teach our kids how to pray. And uh, especially around uh, meals together in our home, we have songs that we'll pray. We will often use the Lord's Prayer, um, but often our kids will say, can we sing? Can we sing the doxology? Now, we have multiple prayers that we sing. Uh, what I love is that when my kids, and I don't stop them, I don't say no, but we'll go out to a restaurant and We'll say, okay, let's pray, and then one of them will bust out. Praise God from who? And you know, right in the middle of the restaurant. It's awesome. But we call that the doxology, and, and that's the word. That's the New Testament word for God's glory. If you were to look this passage up in the Greek, you would see the root of that, the doxa. 
praise, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And so that New Testament word for God's glory is, is this same word for praise, adoration, worship. So you have this Old Testament word, kavod, and what that word means is weight. And the New Testament word for glory, doxa, praise. So the reason that, that I talk about this is because um, you could say that the, the most simple definition of God's glory is that He is weighty. Say it another way, is that He matters. Alright, so that's the, the Old Testament word. And He matters in such a way that He is weighty in such a way that He and He alone is to be worshipped. That's the, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. So th this is what it means to, um, to understand God's glory is that He matters and He is to be praised. He is to be worshipped. Now sin is, is where we come up short of that. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, one pastor that I love to, to read and listen to says that the, the definition of sin is that we prefer things or persons more than God and we act on those preferences. That sin is preferring other things more than God and then acting upon those preferences. And so because of our sin, we're robbing God of the glory that's due Him. We're saying other things matter more than Him. It, it doesn't take you or I long to find out what a person delights in, what a person praises, where a person's heart is. You know, football season, you start to talk to people about football, and you see really quickly passion, right? focus, heartstrings being pulled. Now you, people that love hunting, love your kids, and you, you want to talk about your kids and their accomplishments and the little things that they do. Your spouse, your work, you're passionate about your work. Uh, you don't have to, to listen to somebody long to find out those things that they delight in, that they enjoy, that they're passionate about. The thing coming out of the Reformation that Luther understood is that everyone, I said this on Sunday, everyone was created to worship. That's, that's in our essence. We are worshipers. It's not a, a matter of if, it's what or who. Luther took the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and, and he said there were the first two commandments. There's only one God, and you're to worship that God. And he said all the other commandments are, are really hinged upon those first two. There's only one God, Yahweh is His name, and you are to worship Him. And he said breaking any of the other Ten Commandments happens because you've broken those two. This is what he meant by those other commandments are being hinged. So when you covet your neighbor's things, or when you bear false testimony against your neighbor, it's because something else has become your God. And you're worshiping that thing. 
So, so you lie, you bear false witness. Because your reputation has become your God. And what other people are going to think about you if you told the truth is, is more important to you than what God who looks into your heart and your life thinks. And so we, we bear false witness. We covet. We covet our, our neighbor's stuff. Because something else has become our God and we're worshiping there at that altar. And so God, His glory is what is due Him. It's that He matters above all things and He is to be worshipped. Now, um, the late great uh, preacher and theologian uh, James Montgomery Boyce said this concerning God's glory. He said the, re- the reason that we do not see great periods of revival today is that the glory of God in all things has been largely forgotten by the contemporary church. He said it follows that we are not likely to see revival again until the truths that exalt and glorify God in salvation are recovered. Surely we cannot expect God to move among us greatly again until we can again truthfully say to Him alone be glory forever. Amen and amen. Judging of God as such a one as ourselves. People are startled at the idea that God must love Himself supremely. Infinitely more than the whole universe. And consequently must prefer His glory to everything else. But when we are reminded that God in reality is infinitely more amiable and more valuable than the whole creation, and that consequently, if He views things as they really are, must regard Himself as infinitely worthy of being more valued and loved, that we would see this truth as incontrovertible. Now, what that means is that God seeks first His own glory. Now, think about this. If if Luther had had taught that the two great commandments among the ten, in which the others are hinged upon, is that there is only one God and we are to worship Him, then God Himself would be guilty of idolatry if He put anything else above Himself. That God would not put anything else above him or that would be in fact idolatry and 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 this is where oftentimes in the church our own sense of pride or arrogance or ego gets struck across the grain is because in in our own conscious in our own kinds of ways we think that god loves me more than anything else now it is true that god loves me And we can say with Paul, Galatians 2.20, that I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live now by faith, I live. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. 
God loves us out of an overflow of who He already is. So, God is to be glorified and our sin is the coming up short of honoring Him and adoring Him and worshiping Him for who He is in and of Himself. He is to be glorified. So the second point for us then this morning is that that's exactly what we were created for this evening. Is we were created for God's glory. Flip over, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. Beginning in verse 1, we read this, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. By name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone, verse 7, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. If you meet somebody, or even within yourself, who struggles, what is the purpose of my life? The purpose for your life, the purpose for my life, is that God would be glorified in us and through us. For that is the very purpose for which we were created. We were created for His glory. And so C.S. Lewis understood this when he talked about this dawning reality where we read in the New Testament that God is love. He is the definition of it. Now, if God is eternal, which means He has no beginning and no end, He is eternal, and God is love, then this means that God was love before you and I ever were. This is, this is what Lewis understood when he came across this passage in 1 John that says that God is love. He knew that in God's infinite, eternal existence that He always has been love. And for Lewis, this is how he, he argued for the Trinity. Is that if God is love, then there must be an object of His love within Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternally loving one another. And, and, and what God is doing in creating us is not that He ultimately needs us. God created us not so that someone else would love Him, but out of an overflow of who He is, He would love us. 
It's, it's an amazing reality when you consider it. And yet we often think that we were created because God was incomplete. That God needed someone to love Him. No, He had that for eternity perfectly. Father, Son, and Spirit. In creating us for His glory, it's that He would be glorified in, in such a way that we would glorify Him. That He would give Himself to us. And in that, we are loved. Now, the way that this works itself out, the Westminster Catechism, I think, articulates this beautifully. Um, the Westminster Catechism was written within a, a century after the Reformation. And the, the very first question of the Catechism, Catechism is, uh, means instruction. So the Westminster Catechism was the way that people were instructed or taught. And so um, there's multiple catechisms in the history of the church, and they were used primarily to teach doctrine. Um, we catechize our children. We teach them questions and answers in the Scripture that support it and go along with it. Um, so that when you ask our kids certain questions, uh, they automatically have the response. So the Westminster um, Catechism, the very first question says this, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end? What is the chief goal? What is the purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man, our purpose, our goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, there's an, a, a natural question that I find that comes up when we start to talk about one, God being glorified, and two, God creating us for His glory. Is how is that? How is that humble? In that, for you and I to glorify ourselves is the height of arrogance. Right? You you all know what it's like to be around people who seek their own glory. All right, they're the, the one-uppers. You know, you, you have a conversation with somebody and they always have something better to say. Uh, so, you know, gosh, I, I went scuba diving in the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, yeah, that's nothing. I, mean, I lived underneath the ocean in the Great Barrier Reef, you know, for a week. Oh, okay, well, yeah, All right. point for you. Uh, you know, the, the, the one-uppers, there's, there's a proverb uh, that I love that says, the one who seeks his own glory is like the, the one who eats too much honey. It makes you sick. You know, it, it, it makes you want to vomit. A little bit of honey's okay. Too much honey, you, you get sick on it. The one who seeks his own glory is like the one who eats too much honey. Uh, and, and so if we understand intuitively that you and I are not to be that, you and I get sick when we're around people like that, the name droppers, the one-uppers, then how is it right for God? Alright, that's, that's a question that often comes up when we start to think about God's glory. And the reason, the reason why it's inappropriate for us, the reason why that kind of pride for us that goes before destruction is, is so sickening and makes your stomach turn when you're around it, is because you and I are on the same playing field. If you go back to think about sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, 
the reason that all of these things are in place and, and properly ordered is because all have sinned. So when you start to find somebody that's glorifying themselves, they are minimizing their sin. But God and God alone, the Scriptures are replete, is perfect. He is without sin. He is holy. He is majestic. He is righteous. He, in His essence, is love unfailing and perfect. And so God alone is to be glorified because He alone is worthy of it. He is without sin. So it's right and it's proper. In fact, it's the most humble thing to to exalt one most worthy of it. And, And that one, that only one, is Jesus. It's God. He alone is worthy of glory. And so, um, only He is to be glorified and nothing else. Only He is to be worshipped and nothing else. So we were created for God's glory because He is glorious. Right? Now lastly, um, this evening, as we roll through this, is, is how do we do that? How do we glorify God? Now, one of the catechisms, I mentioned the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's another catechism in church history. It's written in the 17th century. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is based off of the Apostles' Creed. Now, the, the Apostles' Creed is the most ancient of creeds. Um, it was written, um, uh, we know that the final form of it was written in the 8th century, in the, in the 700s. It goes way back. Uh, but it actually, we, we find hints of it in the, in the second century, in the writings of Irenaeus. In the Apostles' Creed, some of you may have even memorized this as a kid, is I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus went to hell. It means that He suffered hell on the cross he descended into hell on the third day he was raised from the dead he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of god the father almighty from thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead we talked about that solus christus our returning king i believe in the holy spirit the universal church the holy catholic church that's what that means not roman catholic i believe in the universal church Uh, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen and amen. So teaching the Apostles' Creed to their children, those who created the Heidelberg Catechism, asked two questions up front. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer to that question is that I am not my own. My only comfort in life and death is I'm not my own. But I have been bought been ransomed body and soul in life and death by the precious blood of my Savior Jesus Christ he goes on to say that in fact all things must work to the good of my salvation in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the good will of my father that's the that's the first question the second question is what must I know to live in this comfort. So if my only comfort in life and death is that I'm not my own, what must I know to live in that comfort? And the answer to the catechism is three things. 
How great is my guilt, for all have sinned and not glorified God, who alone is worthy of it. You remember in John's Gospel, when it's one of the saddest passages, I think, um, in John's Gospel, in John 12, where it says that there were many who believed in Jesus, but for fear, for those that I hear some pages flipping, this is verse 42 of John 12, many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. They didn't confess their belief in Jesus so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wanted glory for themselves. For all have sinned and, and fallen short. They wanted their own ego scratched. They wanted their own exaltation. They were in, in a long line since Adam and Eve that said as soon as you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You get to call the shots. You get to say what is right for you and wrong for you. You get to define the terms. You get to be like God. And, and these people, they love that kind of glory that comes from others. Not the glory from God. How great my guilt is. What three things must I know? The second is how great God's grace is. What He's done to secure my salvation. What He's done to bring forgiveness for my sins. And the third thing is a life of gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. These are the three things that we must know to live in that comfort. How great my sin, guilt. How great God's grace. And, and, and in what He's done to forgive me, a life of gratitude. How do we glorify God? We glorify God by faith, without which it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews 6. Romans 14.23, it's an amazing passage. In, in Romans 14.23, Paul says this. It's an oft, I think, looked over passage. For whatever one, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin is the coming up short of God's glory and whatever that does not proceed or come from faith is sin. So we, we work for the glory of God by faith in Jesus. We love our spouses for the glory of God by faith in Jesus. We, we change the diapers of our children to the glory of God by faith in Jesus. If we were created for the glory of God, then everything that we do is to be done through faith in Jesus for the glory of God. We live a life of faith that is evidenced in good works. Right? This is the great debate that Paul and uh, that's often pitted as between Paul and James, where Paul said that by the works of the law, no one will be righteous. And James says that faith without works is dead. And so you think, well, which is it? The kind of faith that is saving faith is a faith that is evidenced in good works. Think about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast... 
For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God has given us new life in Christ that we might live by faith in Jesus and work in such a way that God gets all the glory for it. Jesus said this in multiple places in the Gospels, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we work through faith in such a way that God gets all the glory. Now, now this is where it, we fall off very quickly as Christians because we work hard. We try to do good. We try not to do bad. But then in the context of it, it becomes a, almost a checklist in our lives about all the things that we're doing where we try to justify ourselves. Look at the things that I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a good Christian. I want you to see in a few places how Paul deals with this in his own life. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 15.10 in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to hit just a couple of these passages for you. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now, if you stop right there, you think, gosh, that sounds pretty arrogant. Paul's saying, I worked harder than anybody else. But he doesn't end there. Though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now go over to Colossians chapter 1. Now look at the end of Colossians 1. Look at verse 28 and 29. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling, with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Now go over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 9 and following. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God, as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How do we glorify God in our work? is that we don't take the credit for it. We glorify Him in our work by working and toiling and straining and serving and speaking with all that God supplies us by His very grace. The shorthand for that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 4-7. And he says this, What do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. 
What do you have in your life that you didn't receive? You say, gosh, I've worked hard and, and, and I was the one who earned the paycheck and saved and toiled and bought my house. I was the one who, who changed my kids' diapers, who fed them, who, who worked long hours to put food on the table, took them to the ball games, bought them their first car. I did that. Where'd the job come from? Where did the, the ceaseless energy come from? Where did the mind to be able to calculate and compute come from? Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why would you go on boasting as though you didn't? The way that God is glorified uh, by faith, evidenced His good works, is that we give Him the honor and the credit that He deserves. This is true humility. That we, we say there's nothing that we have that God hasn't given us. And so we live our lives by a heart of gratitude. And we continue to work hard and then we, we turn around and we give Him the thanks for it. We, we put forward great effort and we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the energy. Thank you for the mind. Thank you for the opportunity. And several years ago, a story was told about the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. And that there was a northerner who went to a slave auction in the south. And he purchased a young slave girl. And after the auction was won and after her rights were procured, he takes her in chains away from the auction, out of the town, into a field. And he uncuffs her. And he looks at her. And he says, you're free. You're free. And with amazement, she says, you mean I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want? And he said, yes, absolutely free. She says, you mean I can say whatever I want to say? And he says, yes, absolutely say anything you want. She said, I'm free to be whatever I want to be? And he said, yes. She said, lastly, and I'm free to go wherever I want to go. And with a, a huge smile on his face, he says, yes, you can go wherever you like. And she looks at him intently and she says, and I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. The way that we glorify God in following Him with our lives is, is praising Him with our words working hard for Him with our actions, and hearts that are turned toward Him in great gratitude for what He's done. So that in our sanctification, we are growing more and more and more, not independent, but wholly dependent. And again, I, I've, I've talked at length in this series about where we, we fall off in the church. One of the things that um, the writer of Hebrews says, and it's, it's a beautiful passage where the doctrine of justification and sanctification come together. In Hebrews 10, it says, By a single offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's where we get off on that, is that we think that our sanctification means that we need God less and less. 
Because I'm becoming more godly. I'm being sanctified. I'm being made holy. So I don't need His righteousness. I don't need His holiness. But that's the, that's the exact opposite of what your sanctification is. In your Christian life, and it doesn't matter how long ago, hear this, it doesn't matter how long ago you were saved. You could have been saved 40 years ago. And, and your sanctification could be very, very minuscule. The writer of Hebrews who wrote that passage in Hebrews 10 also said in Hebrews 5 to the church, he said, by this time, brothers and sisters, you ought to be teachers of the law. But instead, you're needing to be taught elementary principles. You're having to be fed milk and not meat because of your immaturity. It was a hard charge that the writer of Hebrews leveled to the church. Your sanctification is not your independence, your growing independence of the Lord. It is your growth in seeing how great your sins are. Because it, it, it works like this. As you go along in your Christian life, you actually come to this realization increasingly that in everything I need Jesus. In everything. And you sink lower and lower and lower in, in the realization that my sins go so much deeper and are so much worse than I ever thought that they were. And in that, you see God's grace going like this. And, and, and as I go deeper and deeper and deeper to see how wretched my sins really are, then I see how much more God did to save me. So God is actually glorified in your, not your independence, but your dependence on His grace. So your gratitude, your work, and your realization that I need Him every second of every day. That's, that's how God is glorified in your life as a Christian. I want to close with this. I mean, Paul, two things from Paul. And then we're done. Look at the end of Romans chapter 7. At the end of Romans chapter 7, now think about who's writing this. Think about what he's experienced. And he says that I find it, verse 21, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, verse 23, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. If you can't say that in the church, then you are far from Paul. Who went before you 2,000 years ago. Who was the apostle, the church planter, creme de la creme of the church. Who said, wretched, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death that is in me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, 
then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You want to glorify God in your life? It means coming to a realization of really who you are before Him, wretched. And in so doing, seeing more clearly what He is and what He has done for you to save you from it. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Go back to that last quote from Boyce when he said, until we can say truthfully, to Him alone be the glory, we will not see revival in our churches, in our country, and in our lives. And that begins with repentance. Let me give you a moment as we close out tonight to pause before the Lord and, and ask Him a very simple thing. God, would You show me the sin of my heart? Would You show me my sin? In my life, there have been a couple prayers that I've found that God loves to answer. Lots of prayers that I've prayed that I haven't heard, but several that He loves to answer because of the glory that He gets. When you pray, God, would You bring me somebody to share Your Gospel with? He loves to answer that prayer. When you pray, God, will you show me my sin? There's so much honor and glory that he gets in that. And, and I would just ask you for a moment tonight to, to ask yourself, before a holy God, where am I, am I living in sin, unconfessed and unrepented? And would you confess that to him tonight? Before him who sees you for who you truly are, would you ask him, to show you your sin, and then to show you the great grace that He's given you to cover it. Take a moment. Lord, would you be glorified in us? God, would you root out of us idols? Be it our own popularity, our own prestige, our own power, our own glory. God, would you root that out? God, would you bring conviction in this place? Lord, revival begins with us being awakened with blinders off to our own sins so that we might confess our, our tremendous need for You. God, You tell us in Isaiah 42 that You are God and, 
and you will share your glory with no one else. Lord, where we have had sins, idols propped up in our hearts and in our minds, before our eyes and our lives, God, would you bring like the, the Baals and the Ashtaroths from the Old Testament, would you, would you bring those idols crashing down? Would you exalt yourself, Jesus, high and lifted up? so that there might be freedom in this place, freedom from sin, freedom to live for you, to follow. And I pray that for the people of Palace Chapel, that your glory might be seen and known here. Not because you take up residence in this building, but because you take up residence in our lives. So God, where there's pride in this place, would you bring it down? Would you humble us under your gracious and mighty hand, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.